Ah. It's part 45, I think, right? This is 45? Yeah. So that means this is a free one, it's a public one that everyone gets to see, and so on. That's fun. I've been doing that for a while. 35... Was it 25, 45, and... 25, 35, and 45. I don't know why I couldn't just say them in order. Uh, this being 45. I just kind of started doing every 10th one as being an, a free public one, because otherwise people just forget this is even a thing on the Patreon. And they're like, what do you mean there's a long, podcasty World of Warcraft thing where you answer Q&A questions and all that? Q&A questions. I'm extra aware and ready to actually answer questions today, evidently. I can do entire sentences without messing up. Sometimes. Uh, so, I think I'm going to start off with less of a direct question, more of the general interest in talking about Pokemon Go more, because there's been, it's been repeatedly expressed interest that I do that. But also because the, the backlog of questions is kind of drying up, so this is kind of a fun topic to open on and all that. It's fun to do a broad topic for the, uh, Q&As that are public. So, like, first we did Article 13, last time we did the Epic Store... And this time, I'll, I think I'll talk about Pokemon Go for a while. And this is a weird little thing going on here. So now we found our, our way off into the second expansion of the game. And I'm still barely paying attention to what I'm doing because that's what World of Warcraft kind of is. Uh, that's, that's some fun. So, I've been playing a lot of Pokemon Go lately. Like, every single day for hours. Uh, and that surprised me. Basically, because I played it all the way back in 2016, and it had an initial excitement of like, oh, look, there's Pokemon, and you're playing in the real world, and this is weird. Like, it's, it's inherently a uniquely weird experience to play, like, an AR game, basically, where you're walking around the world, and actual physical locations in your environment are affecting the game, because mainly there's three geo not geological what there's three features in pokemon go on the map basically there's pokestops there's gyms and there's nests there might be other examples too but uh that's the things things that come to mind first for me uh and like i don't know the exact distinctions for some of them but basically a pokestop tends to be a user submitted piece of artwork from the environment like a mural or a statue or something and it's a location you can go travel to, and you spin the Pokestop, and it gives you items. Like Pokeballs and potions and stuff like that for you to use in the game. Then you have gyms, which I don't know the distinction between what makes it... Wow, that's dramatic looking. What makes a gym versus what makes a uh, Pokestop? It might just be a more large-scale thing. They might just pick particular ones to make into gyms for whatever reason. I actually don't know what makes something a gym, besides the fact that I'm just aware that it seems that... Art, stru art structures tend to be Pokestops. And the gyms themselves are like, they function as a Pokestop, but also you can you can actually take over a gym and deposit your Pokemon in it and then have it fight against other people's Pokemon and so on. It's a territory control thing. And then on top of that, you have... Uh, there's nests, basically. There's parks, and which is just straight up like national parks or public parks and just that one block you have in the middle of a housing area that's full of just grass and trees and maybe a place for play for kids to play and paths and all that those end up being uh these actually labeled on the map as a green field and everything which affects the gameplay a bit 
But like I, when the game first came out, though, there, there was only 150 Pokemon. Very few mechanics existed. There were no raids. I don't know if you could even battle each other or anything. And in particular, I had a problem, which is that as far as I remember, the only way to get more supplies was to go to a stop or a gym. And it was brutal because if you lived in certain places, it was just a miserable experience. And so like my I had this like initial excitement that was expressed in like our very one of our very first podcasts, basically, uh, because I was first getting into it. And I was particularly excited because there was weird stuff happening even at the time where our local neighborhood was a, a, a Dratini spawn, which is the the um, the Pokemon that eventually evolves into the only like dragon type proper Pokemon that's in the entire first generation, as far as I'm aware. So it's like a it's like a rare, powerful thing, and our neighborhood was a nest for Dratini, so they were just everywhere around where we were living. And so, like, there was, it was a really interesting, like, real life meets internet game experience where you just, you would look outside and you would just see all these people driving around and walking around just flooding our environment. Like, we were, it was like we were hosting a freaking, like, I would compare it to, like, what it must be like when you have, like, like, you live in Austin or something and, like, they're doing some kind of convention or, south by southwest or something and just like an event is happening locally and the public is flooding your location except we were in a completely irrelevant location where nothing happens except pokemon made it a, a location there was a freaking uh traffic one of those like traffic like light sign things where they have like a grid of lights that for that they can program to form letters and pictures and stuff like that uh they had one of those set up to uh try just for the oh i have to lay them to rest i'm killing am i, am I re-killing ghosts is that how this works distressing uh there was this whole thing where there was there was just so much disruption people were like throwing parties at the park all through the night and disrupting the local people because they were just hanging around and like playing music in the middle of the park and hanging out well into the well past midnight and just disrupting all these poor old people that just want to not have anyone be showing up in their environment and so they were like calling the cops on them and stuff like that and it was all a big mess and yeah those signs were telling me like don't pokemon and drive and stuff like that it was the silliest shit but uh i realized that one of the things that made the game bearable at the time was the fact that the different the uh level curve is super fast you get the first, uh, I want to say it's something in the ballpark of like 4 million experience or something crazy like that is what you need to get to the maximum level. But like the first levels are like 25,000 experience, 75,000 experience. Like they go by so fast and you don't really properly slow down and start feeling like the grind of how, how slowly you start to literally level up until you're around like level uh, 25 to 30 out of the 40 levels in the game. And so I was kind of being held aloft by the fact that you level so fast. Because when you level up in that game, you get a bonus. You get a bunch of items that just get thrown into your inventory. You get a bunch of, like, Pokeballs and, like, items that you can just use to enjoy the game. And once you once you start leveling slower, suddenly you're like, oh, there's nothing. I, like, I don't have anything. Suddenly you run, you run out of Pokeballs and you just can't catch any of the stuff around you. And it's actually a pretty miserable experience because you're like, well, how do I play the game? 
And this is where the disparity between environments becomes a really big problem, because if you live in the middle of nowhere, or even just a moderate, normal environment that has like maybe a park nearby and not much else, which is a lot of suburban neighborhoods, for example, uh, and you're just fucked if you're rural. Uh, you don't really have a lot of those poker stops and gyms because they're all—they're not based. They're not like. They're not distributed like geometrically in like a fair pattern across the world. They're based on landmarks. And so if you go to like a tourist destination like Pismo Beach or Las Vegas or Tokyo or something, that's all you see. You just open the map and it's just covered in stuff. And if you live in a suburban neighborhood and you just look out, you just look, you open the map, the app and you spin it around and you look around you see like one thing or zero things on the entire map. Which is rough, because the ideal thing you would do to play this game, because the idea is it's Pokemon Go, the idea is that you're supposed to go out and walk. And they did eventually add more mechanics that further encourage you to walk, including this week's event that I'll get to. Uh, but the... Uh, how do I put this? Uh... You'd want to make like a path. You'd want to plan your route and be like, all right, I'm going to walk around like this block because I've planned this path because it hits these four Pokestops and this gym and that'll keep me going because then you're, then you're, then you're distracted. You're like, you're, you're walking around and you're keeping busy with this game that's using these Skinner box mechanics to like hit you with randomized rewards in the form of uh, random Pokemon spawns and stuff like that. And, and like every walk, like maybe you'll get a rare spawn or something, and that's 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 what that's what kind of keeps the whole thing engaging, is the constant like suggestion that something unexpected or rare or surprising will happen, and that like at any given moment you never know what's going to happen exactly because even if you have an idea of like okay here's the Pokemon that spawn in this nest, and here's the common types that just kind of spawn everywhere, and here's the current event and stuff like that, you still don't know like you don't know like there's going to be a Diglett on that corner when I get there and then when I get to the next corner there's going to be a Pikachu or something like it doesn't work that way it is like constantly unexpected and surprising which lets it be a bit more engaging for the purposes of just being a thing that keeps you going like generally I don't like these kinds of mechanics in just a regular video game that you give your undivided attention to and you're playing purely for the sake of entertainment but as an augmenter that helps you play as, as something that helps augment your walk, like you can, I listen to a, I'll listen to podcasts and play Pokemon Go. Like these randomized rewards and surprises being uh, projected over the world around you, and at, and at times even encouraging you to take detours. Like, oh, there's there's a black silhouette of a thing I'd have never caught before, and it's over that place two blocks away. Maybe I'll make a detour over and walk over that way today. My walk will be different today. Like, that stuff is really engaging as a thing that helps keep you going. But the problem is that you need Pokestops in order to keep the game going because you need to be able to spin them to get items to then have Pokeballs to throw in the first place. And they're really miserly about it. These stops give you, like... If you're really lucky, you'll be like, wow, I spun that and I got a Pokeball, a Great Ball, and an Ultra Ball from the same one. But other times you'll spin when you're like, I got... A potion, a nana berry, and a raspberry. I'm like, that wasn't even a Pokeball. That's like other unrelated items I use for other parts of the game. And it's like, those things are useful. But if you have like one stop in your park and you spin it and you get shit all for it, 
that just means you can't you can't go around catching stuff which is like the core game because there's not much else to the game uh which is another thing to get to uh and it's like you just if you if you it's it's a hard game to stay interested in if you just stall and you like can't actually keep going because to some extent you just want to keep engaging with the skinner box and keep grinding and getting random rewards and trying to catch things and see what shows up and just engage with it on that level but if you're just empty you're screwed and that was just a whole issue the game had and still does have it's just it's worked in some ways towards alleviating that by giving you more additional goals and stuff like that and giving you more ways of getting things but back in the day yeah like i straight up i straight up quit the game i just petered out because i like our local park just wasn't good for that particularly it had two stops that were directly on top of each other so like they weren't there wasn't a walk between them and then it was just a desert you'd spin the map around to look in every direction and there was nothing on the entire map you basically had to walk all the way down like you'd probably basically have to pick a street and walk that down that street for a mile or something like that to get to the next community's park basically and that's just not a good path because the idea would be that you'd be doing a loop where every you'd be uh, it'd be good to have like a five minute to ten minute loop basically because every Pokestop regenerates every five minutes, and so you can then spin it again for more items, and just hope it works out basically. And so the the problem there is that if it's really far away to the next place, that even if you do decide to walk all the way there instead of just sitting still and waiting for the same one to replenish every five minutes. It, you get a problem where the you'll see like two Pokemon try to catch them and then you'll be out of Pokeballs and then you're just walking the rest of that mile in silence not being able to engage with the game and you're like well and then before long you're like why am I even bothering with the game which is uh what ultimately happened is I stopped playing the game and just went back to doing long walks with just my podcasts and nothing else because the game just was more frustrating than it was worth basically to even try to engage with and i had a i had a little moment where i got reignited briefly because uh i was at pismo beach for a wedding like two years ago and i launched pokemon go out of curiosity and boy yeah you go to a you go to a tourist destination like that or even just a place that's like very populated and busy all the time Every single corner of every block is a Pokestop or a gym, and just suddenly you're overflowing with items. And it's, there's even an interesting little dynamic that's a local situational issue to deal with in Pismo, which is that the entire <clears throat> the entire Main Street, Main Street, and Boardwalk and everything is just non nonstop Pokestops. I gotta take a drink of water. It's all non-stop Pokestops. There's so much on the map. It's just so busy there. And then you get to the park. The place that's called the National Park there is the beach. The beach is, is listed as being like a national park. So the entirety of Pismo Beach is a giant nest. Which is funny because it shows up as a, as a green field on the map, even though it's a beach. But of course it's a beach, so there's no art there. There's no landmarks, really. It's just a beach. So you actually have like a ebb and flow to playing on Pismo that's kind of interesting because 
you go to the population centers and the restaurants and the everything to tr- to stock up on items and there's so many of them there's like there's, specifically there's one block i found this last trip because i went there again this last month uh there's one street in particular where just one block has three gyms next to each other like within range of each other but across the horizon you see like 10 gyms and like uncountable numbers of pokestops and then the entire beach is just a drought of just nothing being there but it's a nest which means that it's not only uh full of stuff to catch but it also specifically will always have a special rare thing that's only spawning there locally and you'd have to go like practically to another state to find another instance of that nest elsewhere which the nest mechanic is one of my favorite things in the game and we'll we'll get to that but as far as how the game has improved now, because I, well, I, I should finish that story though, I guess. Uh, what happens, I got all reignited on Pokemon, was all excited and kind of toying around with it a lot. And it was keeping me distracted basically during any of the downsides of the trip. Because I like to be patient. If people want to do stuff on a vacation that I'm super not interested, I will totally just say yes and go along. And I won't, I won't complain at all really. And I'll just find I'll I'll find something to do, and maybe I'll distract myself with something like Pokemon for a bit, or open Discord, or I'll find a place that sells an unusual like some sort of unusual dessert in the local area. I'm like, aha! I found I made a find, and that kind of stuff. So I've I've found plenty of times to just kind of poke around with Pokemon Go. So I'm all excited. I was excited enough that I was even considering buying like the accessory that helps you play the game. At a local uh, GameStop, which uh, thankfully was sold out because I would have been very disappointed if I had bought it because immediately I quit when I got back home because when I went back home, it was just awful because it it was right back to the old situation. and It was just being hit in the face by how localized the fun of that game can be because when you're at a hot spot, there's a bunch of game to do and when you're not... It, the game basically doesn't function, and that's just a straight-up problem. Hello, Subnautica moment here. Look how deep this place is. Oop, is that what I'm looking for, actually? Nope. That's probably something unusually hard. This is new. I haven't, I've never played this expansion before, so like I, I haven't seen them like stepping up their efforts with making underwater areas look neat. I'm used to them just looking brown. Basically. Target Scalder's corpse and use the conch. That's distressing. That's a distressing... Oh, there it is. Hi. (laughs) There it is. I was wondering what they were talking about. Get him, get him, get him. Wow, that's an overpowered ability. What the hell? Jeez, that's the first time using that. All right. There, I went back home and was just hit in the face again by like, oh shit, this game's unplayable if you're a normal person living in well normal's a tough thing to say. It's actually it's actually like almost like a lack of normalcy. I don't know. There's a range of human experiences of where people type of places people live in and so on. And we talk about like income ranges. There's actually kind of a back and forth where like the 
it's like the most wealthy and the most poor people actually tend to live in high populated concentrated uh, locations and then i think like the middle of the range tends to live in more spaced out areas i think about like businessmen and tech people living in the in like big cities but that's also where a lot of the low-cost housing is too well, at least my experience is of where I live has generally been places that I can't actually play Pokemon. And that's that was a problem. But when I come back now, though, there's a bunch of changes that they've made that are more interesting. None of them rectify the, the fact that the core gameplay is garbage in the game and that it's fun to collect a bunch of Pokemon, but you can't really do anything fun with them uh, besides just keep like preening your collection and so on which admittedly is complicated enough that it can it, it can weirdly form its own gameplay uh but one of the big things that really improved was a, there's a series of streaks in the game uh there is a seven day streak for catching pokemon and for spinning stops where you you want to just try to catch something every day and spin a stop every day which is relatively standard, like, play our game every day kind of stuff. But it's functional for a few reasons that it's useful. One of which is that, uh, generally speaking, when you're doing exercise or fitness or anything like that, there's, like, a sunk cost thing where, like, much like Skinner boxes, like, there's, like, sunk cost fallacy and stuff like that that is oftentimes kind of detrimental. But when you're using it for the purpose of getting yourself to be going out and exercising and stuff like that, it's kind of good to manipulate yourself in these ways, in way, in ways that other in other contexts are not not good. Uh, and in this case, yeah, like oftentimes when people have a streak of how long they're behaving, how long they're maintaining a particular habit they want to change, if it's exercising every day or going vegan or whatever the hell they're feeling like changing in their life, uh, the streak is a powerful tool because you're like, oh, I'm 20 days in and so on. It's, it's even used by like Alcoholics Anonymous and so on. It's like, you don't want to, you don't want to mess up and lose the streak you have going on right now. Because then you reset back to zero, just like that. Uh, and, and the way that works with uh, this is that you just get a bonus every day that gets bigger, that, that gets bigger and bigger every consecutive day, all the way up until it hits seven days, which I think is one of the biggest prizes or something. And that's just another source of, like, getting a bunch of Pokeballs and stuff like that. That'll help you, uh, that help you get these resources so you can actually play the game. Because at the same time, having infinite Pokeballs isn't necessarily a solution because there's, like, a drama to catching something where, like, they try to fight you off and they try to escape and there's, like, a... There's like a uh, a targeting system where you're, there's like risk reward involved and you're trying to aim right and the Pokemon moves around and then uh, you have two things going on, which is that your resources dwindle every time you screw up or even when you succeed, technically. Uh, your your Pokeball collection's going down and at the same time, after a certain number of attempts of trying to catch them, they might flee, which means they're just gone. So you you failed another way and sometimes both happen. Sometimes they use up a ton of your Pokeballs just for them to run away. And so the whole thing is just unsuccessful. And, like, that kind of drama is kind of what makes the experience kind of engaging. So it'd be, you'd, you'd kind of be losing something if you removed the risk. But, of course, also, everything I say here is, like, 
back and forth. It's like partly, partly like semi-exploitative free-to-play practices where, where the game, where the comp company's trying to make money off of you, and partly some of them work as gameplay mechanics that kind of make the whole thing interesting in the first place. So that everything comes hand in hand there. Same thing when I say that everything. When I say anything about it being effective as a tool to get you to keep going out and everything, those same tools are being used to get you to play every day, which is their strategy of getting money out of you. So, like, there's... It's a it's a nuanced and complicated conversation where both can be true at the same time in many cases. And so it's a, there's some double-think involved in playing it at times. Uh, but they have a streak for catching Pokemon. There's, there's a streak for uh, spinning Pokestops. There's one for doing, it's less of a streak, but and more a thing you can only do once a day, which is that you get, when you spin a Pokestop, you get little, like, randomized quests. There's one for each Pokestop, and you can only get one quest from each Pokestop, because it's a fixed one. It's universal for everybody. Like, you can be like, oh, I got this quest from that Pokestop, and somebody else can spin it and get the same quest, and you can go, and you can try to do it, and so on. Those things uh, themselves give you rewards, but then when you do seven of them in, in a row... You then uh, get a chance to catch a legendary Pokemon, like a Lugia or a Raikou or something like that. And so that's the that's the primary way to get those kinds of things outside of raids and so on. And so there's another so that's another additional streak mechanic being involved. But then the big one I think is also the walking, the weekly walking bonus. Uh, every Monday morning you just get a big dump of Pokeballs and other items based on how much you walked over the last seven days. There's a five-kilometer milestone, 25-kilometer milestone, and a 50-kilometer milestone, which, as you imagine, if you're hooked to this kind of game, this is decent incentive to go get a lot of walking done in a given week, which, if you see the game's core mechanic, uh, core purpose as being kind of a addiction machine to get you to keep exercising every day and just keep it in your brain all the time, uh, that's compelling because going on walks every single day to try to hit a milestone, it's, it's just on its, on its own just isn't exciting. It just isn't like you can even, you can even enjoy walks and I do, and it's still just a thing you just kind of get around to. And it's like, it, it can be hard to, even if you might go for a while once you're going, sometimes it can be hard to motivate yourself just to go on the walk every day. It's easy to come up with excuses of like, oh, well, I got to get this done or this is how today's schedule is going to work out. And like people are really good at coming up with excuses not to do something that they're marginal on doing. So having the push of like, I got to keep my streaks going and what am I going to catch today? Or uh, my Electabuzz needs 20,000 more Stardust in order to really finished leveling up I, I need to go find more i just need to go play more because stardust just kind of gets drip fed to you like experience just while you're doing basically anything in the game uh and it's what you use to level it's it's basically what pokemon experience because the pokemon don't gain experience you just use candy and stardust on them directly <clears throat> and so on uh it's like you have all these low overlapping mechanics you have so many different systems of like, like I got to do my daily catch and I got to do my daily throw, but also like those are really low effort things of like, you can do those in a couple of minutes if you just go walk to the nearest park and then back. But that's, that's baby shit. You got to at least do today's quest. You got to do at least one quest today, right? That's, 
That's that's more investment. That takes longer than just walking to a stop in a Pokemon. Because you want to keep making your progress towards the next legendary catch so you can maintain the <clears throat> pattern of doing them every week, right? And then by then you and by the time you're thinking in, in terms of doing that, you're probably thinking like, well, I should probably like, you know, maybe I'll catch something cool and maybe uh like I want to get what I need for this particular guy. Like let's uh let's let's let's, let's keep going. And before you know it, you've gone for an hour or something, which is the goal. Is just just, try, just trying to get you motivated via a bunch of different systems cuz if there's one thing the game does well, it has many, many, many overlapping systems of progression and so on that give you a lot of different things to think about simultaneously, which is good. Uh, it's one of the better structures I've seen, I think. The, what I always compare to is, is uh, Fortnite when I think of a really bad system. Which I don't know if they've changed Fortnite's PvE since we last played it, but you're welcome to check my video especially my part one where i'm like in the tutorial for it and i'm just like i'm gonna lose my mind here uh fortnite's pve was 500 overlapping skinner box systems and they all felt like they amounted to nothing and half of them felt like they took away from the game because like in that game every item and thing you got had durability and would break and be lost so it didn't matter how legendary your cool weapon was, it was going to break after a certain number of uses and you'd have to go try to catch a new one. Everything was inherently disposable because they wanted you to keep RNGing more items and so on. And like the systems were so nonsensical where like you would recycle things into stamps and put them in a stamp book for some reason. And there was multiple skill trees and randomized characters and like you couldn't pick a particular character you liked because you would draw entire characters at random just purely at random and like you'd have to just pretty much just go with whatever one you got that happened to be the highest quality regardless of which type of character it was and there was nothing about that was remotely fun or engaging at all and and i say that from the particular perspective of somebody who doesn't mostly find these kinds of ideas fun and engaging in general uh which is what's unusually compelling about Pokemon and I think that's my that's probably in part because of the fact that Pokemon is it's Pokemon <laughs> so it kind of leans heavily on the core conceit oh, Jesus that was a lot of text I just unlocked every expansion every uh, yep that's a lot of instances at the same time damn some of those might be the some of those might be the end game raids I can't remember which ones were the raids or not. I used to raid Burning Crusade. Huh. But yeah, I think that Pokemon Go has the, as a core conceit because it's just ripping off of po riffing off of Pokemon. It has a core premise that is inherently compelling, and we and we know it's compelling because people have been obsessively playing Pokemon for an eternity now. And it still sells like crazy every single time. And it's not purely because of the combat gameplay, because it's got the most basic JRPG, like, just not particularly fresh combat. So it really is the, the, the bunch of monsters that are just inherently kind of fun to collect and so on. And uh, I think one of the reasons, one of the other things that saved the game a bit when you, for, for people that come back to it, which is a universal experience, 
it seems. I've talked to a bunch of different people about Pokemon Go because I'm meeting up with them at raids and stuff like that. And like, it seems like everybody quit the game for some span of time and then rejoined recently. Like, so many people seem to be surging back to the game over like the last six months. And I, I think that's partly because the game just wasn't that compelling and needed time to kind of reach where it is now. And one of the many other changes is just the fact that like, they're four generations deep now. I don't think they have all of them in yet of those four generations. But they have four generations of Pokemon, so now instead of being, going out to your park and catching, like, the same Pidgey and Rattata over and over again with a, a couple of surprises here and there, right now there's, like, half a thousand things to go after, which is definitely a more compelling sandbox of possible of possibility being thrown around. Just so many different things showing up. It's also kind of fun to just see... In my case, I don't know a lot of these. So there's actually like this genuine discovery being made on my part because I played, I played a fair share of of Pokemon Yellow when it came out when I was a kid, and I watched the anime, for like the first, I think for the first version of the show, and then for Johto, and then I played Silver, and that's when I dropped off Pokemon. I really haven't played it since, and so I'm I'm getting like. There's the initial hook of like these familiar faces showing up in the game, but then the secondary layer of like all of these uh, surprise, weird things I've never seen before showing up that I that are being introduced to me for the first time via this version of Pokemon. So I'm finding out a bunch of bunch of cool new dog Pokemon I didn't know about that I like. They're great, uh, weird prequel baby versions of Pokemon from Generation 1 is a common enough thing. And then also evolutions of them, too. So, like, they like they did things like they took standalone Pokemon like Magmar and Electabuzz and turned them into trilogies. So they, they, they retconned, like, a straight-up a baby version into existence that turns into that Pokemon. And then they also created a evolution that happens later. So now the Pokemon you know of as being a standalone Pokemon that didn't evolve at all now has a thing that evolves into it and a thing it evolves into. And that's just a... It's, it's interesting. Sometimes they clash super heavily in art style and design sensibilities, which is strange. In part because of the fact that, like... In Electabuzz's case, I want to say that, that Elekid and Electivire were both both created in different generations too, I think. So they also, so not only do they not look like they were designed in the same generation as Electabuzz, they, they're not designed in the same generation as each other, I think, which makes the continuity look really weird. In particular, my, my most hated one is, uh, I really like Rhyhorn turning into, into Rhydon in Generation 1, but then they came up with Rhyperion, and he's just revolting. He doesn't look... He doesn't even really look like he's related to Rhydon in any way, besides really basic elements. He looks like a weird Mega Man boss. He looks like a different everything, and he's kind of just all-around unappealing to look at. And I'm like, no, you took a... Right now, I'm st I'm saving up my Sinnoh Stone and my candies to evolve my Rhydon to Rhyperior, because he's pretty high up in power and everything. But I'm like, I don't want to do this to him, because I like him now. I think that's part of the thing is that you get hooked into the, all of this partly because of the fact that there's just so many 
character designs to toy around with. And it's not only just the 600-ish Pokemon, but then there's also shinies that they keep releasing of all the different Pokemon. So there's the really rare alternate coloration version of them. But on top of just catching the Pokemon you want, you also want to catch high IVs. So then you're doing all these checks to figure out how strong a particular Pokemon is because you're trying to find out whether or not they're actually a good version of that one. Because putting your candies and... uh, Putting your candies and Stardust investment all into one thing can actually get really expensive compared to like how fast set resources appear. So you don't want to waste everything on a on like a low IV Pokemon. IVs being the invisible stats that determine how good a Pokemon is, which I didn't know about it when I played Pokemon, but apparently is a thing that maybe has always been around, I guess. I didn't know that on top of certain Pokemon being just straight up better than other types of Pokemon that also within the spectrum of Pokemon some of them were just shittier than other ones for invisible secret reasons. That's 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 the really weird sensibility is that like this Pokemon in general but also Pokemon Go especially actively contradict like the entire basis of like the, the entire basis of like the narrative of Pokemon, which is like, you can be the best, and you can try hard, and you can train, and everybody has a power inside of them, and power of friendship, and yay, earn things through hard work and perseverance, whereas in actual Pokemon, you have to catch like a hundred copies of the same guy until you get the one that's genetically superior, and then throw all the other ones away. And then Pokemon Go takes an extra level, which is that even when you have a really good genetically superior copy of a Pokemon, you then still need to, like, perpetually catch other copies of it to feed that those Pokemon into that one. Because uh, when you, the only way to catch get the candy needed to level to power up a Pokemon or evolve it is to catch other Pokemon of that type. So you need to keep catching Pokemon over and over and over and over again. And it's just, it's really weird to think about, and not, I so you just are better not off not doing that. Is he not coming? Oh, there he goes. Oh, he's gonna go really slow. Lurgle Borgle. Lurgle Okay. But yeah, like perpetually, like you hit a point where like. Just leveling, just powering up a Pokemon one level will cost like six candy, which is what you need, which is the equivalent of catching two of it, that Pokemon, uh, or its other evolutions and so on. So you just, it's just a meat grinder. It's just distressing. Like it's so counter to the, any of the inspiring narratives that the anime would propose about the games and so on and so forth. Like it's like, no, you gotta individuality is pointless and that's hit that hits you hard immediately because they make you pick a starter when you first start playing the game you pick Bulbasaur Squirtle or Charmander they just spawn on the map right next to you and you get to catch one of them and then the other two disappear when you catch one of them uh and I guess there's supposed to be a trick where if you keep walking away that it'll it'll eventually spawn a Pikachu for you and you can have that be your starter or whatever which is interesting but ultimately as far as I'm aware those starters are like guaranteed to have low IVs so if you're going to train, uh, if you're going to have like a high-level cool Venusaur dude, you're inevitably going to throw away the Bulbasaur you started with and catch a better Bulbasaur and turn that one into the Venusaur instead. Which is a bummer, because they did add one mechanic that was really nice 
for a problem I had because like I I, I was I, I used to always complain in the vanilla version of the game that starters were completely pointless. I didn't know IVs even existed yet, so all I knew then was that you have to catch more of a Pokemon to get candy to ever level them up or power them up and so on. So I'm like, a starter is completely useless, is what I was saying back then, because the only way to have a Venusaur that's high and, and max out its level is to first catch so many Bulbasaurs that you have 125 candy, because you need to, it's 25 to evolve to Ivysaur and 100 to evolve to Venusaur, but also you need more uh, candies and Stardust to actually power it up at that point to increase its level. And like at that point, you've seen and caught so many Bulbasaurs that the individuality is totally lost and the purpose of starting with a Bulbasaur is completely pointless because it's not like you're... It's totally like a, a thoughtless nod to the original games without any of the context when they make you pick a starter at the beginning because you don't like use that Bulbasaur to like battle the other Pokemon. You just throw Pokeballs at shit. And that's the whole... That's how the, that's how the catching mechanic works. There is no process through which you... Uh, use your Pokemon you already have to catch them. So you don't need a starter at all. And you're going to find better Bulbasaurs in the pool of the hundreds you catch in the process of trying to make your one Bulbasaur turn into a Venusaur and everything. But the one mechanic they did add that that fixed that is that they added the buddy system, which is you can pick one Pokemon to be your buddy, and you can switch that at any time, but there can only be one at a time. And just as you walk, you generate candy for that buddy. So suddenly, oh, starters make more sense because I can just go on long walks with Bulbasaur and he'll generate candy, which is good because Bulbasaurs and all the starters in general are not very common to find in the wild. So being able to go on walks, like, oh, now I can have, like, a favorite Pokemon that I train in a more direct sense by actually taking them with me on the walks. And they vary. Uh, Magikarp gives you, gives you uh, candy every kilometer. Most Pokemon give you one every three kilometers. I've seen Eevee that gives you one every five kilometers, probably because I think they set the evolution cost too low for how powerful Eevee's evolutions are, and now there's now they have a lot of them in the game. Uh, and then the weirdest, one, the craziest one I've seen so far is that Celebi has a 20 kilometer candy cost, which is just basically the game saying, no, you're not going to walk Celebi. You're going to have to find rare candy if you want Celebi to ever have ever have any leveling up so better start better start raiding haha <laughs> uh so they didn't, they want to make that hard for you if you want to level up your mythic pokemon so at least there i'm like okay now having a starter makes sense you can pick that pokemon as your starter immediately set them at your buddy level one and just go on walks and while you're building up your collection of all your other things you're getting candy for your bulbasaur that you to then train it up but what ruins that is that supposedly what ruins that is IVs, which is that your your starting Bulbasaur is genetically inferior to the other Bulbasaurs you're going to see everywhere. And I, I think I've read that the starting Pokemon that you get always has low IVs. So basically, he's just garbage. And, and I feel like that's... That was unnecessary. I feel like they could have made your starting Pokemon a guaranteed 100% IV just to, like, just give you one... Especially since you only get to pick one, and just make them non-tradable, so you can't like cheat by making a bunch of accounts, getting a hundred percent IV, and then trading it to another account, and then now you, like now you have all these one hundreds. Just make your starter non-tradable. Like make them, make them give give some incentive for them to be your favorite Pokemon, like in uh, like in Pokemon Let's Go Eevee, where they make uh, 
they made Eevee overpowered as shit. <laughs> Which really makes sure that you're going to be using that Eevee that's on the cover and is in the name of the game and everything. Eevee constantly follows you around, Eevee interacts with you, you can pet Eevee, Eevee can learn a bunch of moves they're not supposed to be able to learn. I'm not saying go that far, don't make them a game-breaking bullshit Pokemon, but, you know, give you one perfect IV starter. Because then you, then you do actually have a starter. Because that's the only way in-game to incentivize you keeping your starter besides just the idea of, like, being attached for some reason to them emotionally because of the first Pokemon you got. Which you largely catch the same way as every other Pokemon, because there isn't even, like, a Professor Oak to be like, Here is your starter Pokemon! You just, you just start the game up and they just, under the map, and you get to pick one. I'm really off track in the game, in this game, <laughs> in, the, in the World of Warcraft, on what I was actually doing quest-wise. I feel like they could have handled that entire situation better. But hey, I got my 98% Venusaur. So I've got that going on. And a 98% Dragonite. And a 98% a couple other things. I have like 200% that are like... That I found so far that are not Pokemon I care about. But I'll probably keep them just because they're 100%. Cause that's kind of exciting. It's just it's the rareness of it. That And that speaks to what I was talking about a little bit. It's just that like... There's so many layers of value in how the Pokemon are handled. Once you get past the weird meat mulchy element of of like what I was talking about a second ago, uh, the fact that there's so many progression systems and then also so many ways to judge the value of individual Pokemon, it means you constantly have so many goals in the back of your head. Like in the back of my head, I'm thinking like I got I got my 98% Venusaur, but he's not high CP yet, which which means he's not he's not high level yet. So I gotta I wanna put resources into him to make him go up. But also like I've got my I've got my I've got a high IV Electabuzz. I've got a I've got a shiny Electabuzz. I've got my Celebi. I've got my Salamence and my Dragonite. Like I've got a bunch of different types of Pokemon that I'm all interested in seeing get to their max level. While also I'm trying to get uh find rare sightings of like Rhyhorn, so I can get enough to make the Rhyperion happen, because that's like a huge candy ask. And then there's like, you're, you you have uh, across the, the span of your collection, so many simultaneous progress bars of things that you're trying to do. And, they're, and some of them are for the meta or whatever, or for some sense of real progression. But a lot of these choices are actually kind of self-chosen. A lot of these are kind of self-decided, like, no, here's what I want to do in the game. And you've kind of just invented goals because ultimately you can't like win pokemon go and in fact a lot of this collecting kind of doesn't have an inherent purpose which to some extent i think is also true of actual pokemon like generally speaking pokemon games are not difficult and you can and when you look at the span the, the span of like the level range you can get in a particular pokemon game like getting level 99 and stuff like that. And then you look at like, from what I remember, the actual level requirements of like beating each gym and the Elite Four and stuff like that. Like the majority of the progression, a lot of the progression system is not used basically. And like you could totally just catch whatever Pokemon you want, blurp through the game and be done with it relatively quickly if you just beat the story. So by and large, I think people make their own goals, like trying to fill the Pokedex and so on. So in that spirit... 
Pokemon Go is actually weirdly not that different from other Pokemon games because really you're just a lot of times just compulsively trying to fill in the entire Pokedex or collect them all or make all of your favorite ones as powerful as possible and you know have a bunch of series a series of self-determined goals a lot of that actually does match up unfortunately for Pokemon Go the combat's just bad like I don't like the po I don't like Pokemon's combat in general where you have four moves and you there's four 50 lines of text every time you click on anything even though you're doing even though you're performing relatively simple actions it has it just you'll see this when you, in my pokemon let's go let's play eevee playthrough with marty where i'm just talking about like yeah you just end up mashing the a button during combat and marty who loves pokemon is straight up in agreement on a lot of this stuff because like yeah you just and like there's so much time wasty elements to the combat in pokemon because there's 500 lines of dialogue and these animations play, but at the end of the day, all of this pomp and circumstance is generally to ser in service of a combat system where you pretty much just pick the in many in in the majority of fights you just pick the one move and just do it, and then the fight ends in like two turns. But in those two turns, you pressed A like 30 times for some reason, and you're not really making a lot of tactical decisions because <clears throat> the majority of the experience is collecting and grinding. And there's a relatively small number of actual tactical encounters where you really have to, like, go at it and carefully plan and figure things out and actually use type advantages carefully and hope you have, like, a complete collection that can counter every type of thing. Like, that's not really a thing so much. So weirdly, I think that's actually kind of more of a thing in a... In a Pokemon Go than in the original Pokemon is just the fact that like in Pokemon, at least in Pokemon Go, you actually like will go out with raid groups <clears throat> and drink water again. I've got to, for those who don't know, I have this thing where when I'm in, when I'm in solo podcast mode, I've talked so constantly without pauses that, uh, it wears down my voice. <laughs> I'm just monologuing and there's no game to determine the pacing of what I'm talking about because I'm not let's playing and there's no other person to talk to so I just like run it raw and I'm then I'm like ah. <laughs> uh, like I like I like I got an, I, I got an invite to an uh, EX raid which is an exclusive invite only raid thing that happens where the game basically does a lottery invisibly that you don't even know it's, ha it's happening. And then you and a bunch of people just get, get a weird secret invite to a raid happening at a specific location at a specific time, which is amusing and bizarre and so on. And you have this weird meetup where you all just meet up with some anonymous people that are all invited to this thing together, like in a weird, as like a weird form of like video game matchmaking which is a strange experience and like i showed up there and we were fighting deoxys and everyone's like oh yeah i hope you got like gengar with shadow ball and like ghost and dark pokemon or whatever that was good for that and i'm, and I'm like oh shit that's a total blind side for me entirely and so like there despite the fact that the combat is garbage uh, there is genuine like you want to have a proper fighting team of various types to be able to match up against these kinds of things because it does matter. The combat itself is very casual and not very interesting, but it does. It still expects things of you. You're not going to just steamroll the game 
particularly easily. And uh, that was kind of a heartbreak day because it was my first ever EX raid invite. And I talked to my friends trying to ask what what the experience was like for them when they did it. And none of them have even gotten an EX raid before, before, even though they've all been playing longer than me. So it was like an extra exclusive, unusual thing is what it felt like. And... I just I was so unprepared and uh, we spent the, the me and the other anonymous people that all showed up like we spent the next like hour because we have a you have a tick you have a time limit of the range of like the 45 minutes or so where the raid is available and in that span of time we were just desperately trying to like I'll I'll I'll, I'll try to level up that guy real quick put some stardust in him if you like for people that have stardust and uh try to make we're trying to optimize our raid compositions to have like higher burst damage and we're we're like we were all working together to try to optimize our parties because of how raids work and we ultimately failed which was tragic but that was but that was like that was an interesting social situation to be in and an interesting little challenge that was different but unfortunately a lot of the challenge comes from being prepared way in advance and the biggest way to prepare is just to play significantly more of course and that's largely something you do by just yeah Having started the game sooner, essentially, is the only real thing you could you could really fix at that point. But that was that was interesting, though. For those that don't know, the way that raids work in the game is that a gym will have a generally will have an egg over it. How do I take? Oh, I press this. A gym will have a giant egg over it that's going to hatch in like an hour or whatever, and then when it hatches, it becomes a raid Pokemon that that's hovering over the gym for like forty five minutes. And you and a bunch of people need to all try to group up and take them down. Uh, when you click on the Pokemon and challenge it, it'll uh, it'll start a like two or th- it's like a two minute lobby where you wait before the raid starts, and that gives t- that gives time for anybody in the environment to join in. Either people you organized with that are you're playing with to join in, or just random people that just happen to see the raid and are playing the game can like anonymously they can just walk up and join in without knowing you and so on which is often good news because you just need a bunch of people hopefully and uh one thing one thing that's definitely said about the strategy of these things is that ultimately much like giant world encounters in an mmo the biggest way to beat these is just to have way more people more so than to actually strategize we were in an interesting situation where we were right on the cusp of almost being able to do it which made us extra need to strategize to try to see if we could rip a victory out of the Jaws of Defeat. And we ultimately didn't that one time. But uh, so you, you get into a lobby, you wait for two minutes, it fills in, you can see everybody's like little username and avatar they've customized while you're waiting. And it, it also shows their teams between Instinct, Valor, and Mystic, because the game's divided into three teams, which is mainly used for the territory control of the gyms. And once the two minutes is up, you just get you and your party of Pokemon you've chosen, your six, all get thrown into this fight where uh, this giant Pokemon is in the middle of like a what looks like Pokemon Stadium, basically. And it's battling out, and it's, a, and it's just usually like a devastatingly high power level that is completely outside of the balanced scope of the game because he's a raid boss. And... You're all collectively attacking it simultaneously while it does attacks that basically hit all of you simultaneously. And so you're basically having a whole bunch of one-on-one fights against said uh, Pokemon at the same time. 
but you're all collectively wearing down the same health bar. And you can see everybody else's Pokemon in a circle around it, all attacking at once. So you can, at least you can see them, but you don't really directly interact with each other so much. And the goal is to defeat the entire Pokemon within a time limit. Because that's the, that's the threat. That, that's how they balance the combat to actually have some kind of state where you can defeat them. Because, uh, where they can defeat you, I mean. Because, hy hypothetically, if you have like a thousand Pokemon, you can just keep throwing more Pokemon at them and doing a bit more damage, then that Pokemon dies, then throw the next Pokemon at him, and he does a bit more damage, and then he dies. And... Like, you you could just infinitely keep going. And at that point, there wouldn't be really a difficulty curve. It would just be expensive resource-wise, because you'd have to revive them all later and so on. Uh, which would be... Uh, which would definitely suck. Uh, but you could still beat them. So their way around that is that you have, like, either two or three minutes, I believe. And I think it's based on the difficulty of the particular encounter. Where you and your collective group of people all need to be able to defeat them within that time limit. Or the, or the, uh, the battle will end with you losing. And so that's where the resource, that, that's where the you having a proper team set up, both in the form of your Pokemon being prepped for this and also the having a large group of people ready and so on, uh, it actually comes into play because that's the difficulty curve. And that's where things get interesting because then you, that means people need to get organized. So what you'll find is that whether you know about it or not, there's, there's a decent chance that there's like a Pokemon community in your local area. And if you don't, and if they're smart about it, they'll put themselves somewhere where they can recruit new people. So you could actually find this if you want. Some people use Facebook, some people use Discord, which I obviously prefer because Facebook is like a roading society. <laughs> uh, specifically, there's the, the website called the Sylph Road, which is named after Sylph Co. from Pokemon. Uh, which also has some sort of distressing connotations, because I'm pretty sure that's also named after the Silk Road, which I believe engaged in the slave trade, and this is a game about trading living creatures. It's That's a distressing pun that I try not to think about. Uh, if you go to the Silk Road, though, there's a, there's a tab that helps you find local communities, and you'll actually, like, find... Like, oh, here's a look here in this town. There's actually like, here's a link to their discord and everything. And you can just join in. And that's, that's what I did is I found the local discord that way. And, uh, I, I, it's been, a, it's been quite an experience. Some of my favorite elements of playing this game has been just the weird experience of playing this stuff. The, uh, cause you'll meet up with the local raiders and you'll all just show up at this location at the same time and you'll just see how many of them there are sometimes and all these different people and like some people playing with their kids or their family or couples or siblings that play it together uh there's one guy that drives around with a minivan with his entire family like his wife and his, all of his kids it's just like six people in a car all playing at the same time so they are a raiding party in one vehicle in one family and like that's that's a whole trip uh i went to a pvp tournament recently where I straight up, like, got social anxiety and wanted to leave, basically, because... Liberal, is that not the same thing as with the one I already fought? I got, like, anxiety and wanted to leave because of the fact that the, uh... There were so many goddamn people in the room that I didn't know, that I didn't want to be there. Uh, like, it was enough people for me to have that rea reaction of, like... 
it's like walking into like a crowded cafeteria at a school that you're new to like that's the feeling i got of walking into the this back room of a tabletop building a tabletop store where like the entire it was a pretty big back room even for a tabletop place actually and just every single bench every single like cafeteria style table was just loaded with people that were sitting across from each other and dueling because they were all in a uh, Pokemon Go tournament. I couldn't participate anyway because I uh it was like I think it was actually organized by Silph Road and it was uh dark fighting and psychic I want to say and it had to be a specific CP range and I straight up only had one Pokemon in my entire collection I would even qualify in in under those uh rules let alone uh a battling party. But while as, as much as I don't like being in those kinds of settings, it was one hell of a trip just to see just how many people were just coming out of the woodwork. And there's definitely an amusing moments where I just, I'll like take a gym and I'm, I'll be like visiting like my grandparents and I'll be like afterwards, I'll go check out their, their local park when the get together's over and I'll like just walk around and check out the area and, uh, I'll end up like taking the gym and then walking around the park and just kind of seeing what their nest has and stuff like that. And then like, that's an interesting death animation you got there, possessed orca. <laughs> that was a trip. Uh, you'll see like what looks like what's probably like a fifty-year-old woman pushing a stroller, and then you'll see them suspiciously stop somewhere, and you'll be like, "Huh." I wonder why they stopped right there. I don't know. People are always on their phones these days. Who knows? Then they're there for a minute or so, and you're like, hang on a minute. That woman's taking my gym. That woman's taking my gym. <laughs> and you realize that, like, that lady pushing the stroller just stopped because she's also playing Pokemon Go, and she's coming for your shit. <laughs> you start... Because it's so innocuous for somebody just to be on a phone in public, that it's actually really easy not to notice how many people are actually playing Pokemon Go all the time still to this day just like after the initial craze died down because they look like regular people just being on a phone but you start noticing the patterns because you're like oh that they, they didn't just stop they stopped there I know what's there there because I know the invisible I, in the invisible background detail that is the the map of Pokemon Go uh, and like that's where that's where a stop is. That's where a gym is. That person's challenging a gym right now. That person's trying to raid and so on. Specifically, I got my brother back into it. Uh, so we've been we've been playing and actually going on. We got on a few trips together and, ha and having some fun with that too. So it's serving yet another purpose of like being a social thing to play together and so on, which I think is I I encourage that kind of use of Pokemon Go especially. Uh, and we saw a raid pop up and we just we just took on that raid because why not and 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 we were we were standing in an open field with just one other person there was this uh i think it was a high school girl just sitting at a bench and she had been there the whole time and we didn't it, you just you just think there's just random people around but then we look at we look at the raid and there's three people in the lobby it's the two of us and one other person and there's nobody else around, so it has to be her. So we realize, oh, she wasn't just like randomly like hanging out in this park or like waiting for a friend or whatever. She was literally waiting 
at the raid because the egg was there and it was going to hatch in five minutes. So she just was waiting patiently for the the raid to start so she could join it, basically. And th th those kinds of things. It's just it's interesting to see how many people are doing it. Uh, I will say that the downside is that my least favorite places to be are often the places where raids happen. In particular, the the Discord I'm in will very often do extended runs where people hop from like uh, downtown. They go they go around in downtown. They go from stop to stop and stop and stop and they do like a bunch of raids in a row in a big marathon, like a caravan. And I hate it because I don't like being in downtown parts of of, uh, of cities. Mainly because, uh, one, it's super... There's tons of cars everywhere. It's tons of traffic. I also don't know the areas that well, so I have to have like a GPS to even find the next location that's being announced and so on. But also like uh, something that I'm super not used to there's tons of one-way streets everywhere. So like, I don't... I'm pulling back from the idea of doing raids and places like that because I don't really feel safe trying to navigate. And I'm not... I definitely don't... I'm definitely not in any hurry to get in an accident because of Pokemon Go. Which I do not play while I'm driving. It's just that I'm driving to play it, which is different. Which is that I'm... You're getting a series of locations... They're like, oh, that's what the next raid is. And then you try to drive over there. And you're not playing the game while you're driving. It's just you're driving to there to then play the game. So you basically open the game. You find out about the raid location. Then you close the game. You drive to the location. And then you play it there. Uh, there's an important distinction there. You should not play while, pl while driving. That's a huge problem. Uh, but like, I just don't like spending large amounts of time in those kinds of settings. Especially since, like, if you're not used to it, it can be a surprisingly hard time just trying to judge which ways are one-way streets until sometimes it's too late. And you're like, oh, God. So I've had some not happy encounters where I'm like, I need to park on the side of the road and patiently wait for all this oncoming traffic to leave and then figure out how to turn around because I'm on a one-way road and stuff like that. Uh, I grew up in a town that didn't have one-way roads at all or roundabouts every single intersection was a light or a traffic it was, every single intersection was a was a traffic light or a stop sign so that's that's what i'm used to you drive on a grid and you stop and you stop at every single intersection and then you turn wherever you want to go and it feels way safer that way i'm not a fan of living in a city ish place where like everywhere you go there's another yield and another there's a bunch of surprise one-way roads that are, like, four lanes wide, but they're one-way for some reason. And then, like, yield turns are everywhere. And then roundabouts, which I'm cool with a one-lane roundabout. Because that's really logical and straightforward. But two-lane roundabouts, immediately I'm like, I don't feel... I, every time I get in and out, I feel unsafe. Because I don't trust everybody else to be getting in and out at the right patterns and like if somebody's flanking me at a weird angle and they're kind of like behind me but to my side and i'm on the inside lane and it's time for me to exit i'm straight up like will this be safe or are they going to crash into me i don't like the uncertainty that roundabouts instill when they have more than one lane whereas a, a, a one lane roundabout it's like there's zero uncertainty you just you just yield on your way to getting into it 
and then you just drive and exit wherever and there's no real openings for problems or uncertainty but what i don't like <clears throat> is a thing i've encountered is that there's fucking turn like left turn yields which sometimes are labeled and sometimes aren't so i've had uh i've seen some intersections where it's like oh on a green light left turn is a yield which means that even though it's green you're not supposed to go left until the oncoming traffic comes by and is clear which i've never seen in the town that i lived in because that's just not how they worked a green light meant go period and a red light meant no not go there wasn't like maybes the green didn't mean maybe go left so that's a new experience for me uh that i hate <laughs> But at least they're often labeled. But even then, it'll be like left turn is yield on green, but also, but then I'll like it'll turn green, and I'll pause for a second because there's a ton of traffic facing me on the other side, and then I'll get honked at from behind because I'm not going, and I realize the people in front of me are not going that are facing me because oncoming traffic has a red light, and I'm like I can't tell what color their light is. I have to just wait and find out the hard way because if I go, we're going to crash. But if I don't go, maybe they have a red light and people and then people are like giving me shit for not going right away. But like, that's a yield. I can't just go. I have to like, no. But uh, the worst version of this I've seen is an unlabeled left turn yield, which is a very scary surprise to have happen to you is when you start turning left and then oncoming traffic comes straight at you and you're like, oh God, and you slam on your brakes and hope for the best, basically. And then you just see as so much traffic goes by because they clearly have, a, it's not one guy running a red light, it's they have a green light. And you're like, there was no sign saying this was a yield. And I found like four of those in this town already. And I'm like, that's awful. That's, that seems like a straight up mistake that they don't actually even label which ones are yields that seems like it shouldn't be how the rules work i don't know it's been a, it's been a weird experience where due to city planning and so on uh there's just a weird experience where like each individual town and city in one state can have different rules for and a different different rules for driving and a different driving culture and so on it's one of the weird things about one of the weirder things about uh driving about uh about moving is how much towns that are in the same region of california are fundamentally different experiences to drive in that's not one of the experiences i thought was going to change when i moved especially when, since i'm still not moving to like a, a big city where things are full-on crazy like la but that's been a thing Let's see. Is there anything else I want to talk about with Pokemon Go? Not really. I figured it was fun to do an outlet for it because I've been playing it a lot and I'm used to talking about games that I play, but we don't really have like an ongoing podcast right now so much. So it'd be kind of, it seemed like it'd be good to of a topic to go on for a while. Uh, and also because I can't let's play it. There's been a few requests here and there. I'll like post a picture of the related to the game or something. And uh, people were like, let's, you should let's play the game. And I'm like, I'm not, I, I, I can't do that. <laughs> That's just, there's a number of issues with the idea of let's playing Pokemon Go. Uh, one of many of which is the fact that it's just, it's straight up doxing. Which some people are comfortable or whatnot. 
at first, my first instinct was, you can't Let's Play Pokemon Go. It has, like, no discernible gameplay besides basically the equivalent of practically opening living loot boxes in the form of surprise things that you keep seeing everywhere. It's like, how would one Let's Play this? Uh, and I am of the opinion that po Pokemon Go does not have a particularly... Any particularly interesting gameplay content, it ultimately is like like a micro addiction system that is worth exploiting because it's good for social interaction and uh, exercise and just getting out, getting that vitamin D and all that. Uh, but it's not really a compelling video game, or at least I, I would I have to specify it's not necessarily a good video game. Compelling, yes, because compelling just speaks to its, its ability to get, keep you engaged and going and continuing to play it. An important thing to, to actually distinguish between video games is that compelling is actually a measurement of basically a game's ability to keep you playing, which is often uh, sometimes, unfortunately, more indicative of its addictive nature and its its. Uh, psychological exploitations more so than its actual cool fun compelling design necessarily so those can kind of mean two different things and i lost my train of thought a little bit oh yeah but i have i have seen like trainer tips and a few other channels so i'm a little more convinced of the fact that you can make content about pokemon go one of the main things is that uh there is some form of news happening every week to every other week in the game. Uh, so that that keeps things rotating and fresh a little bit so that you can talk about that a little bit. And then you can be like, go engage with the new thing that's happening this week for a bit and make a video out of that. The main issues there is one, yes, doxing, which is that you're just straight up like showing your routine and so on to people. Uh, and being like, here's where I am. Here's the real life location where you could track me down and stuff like that, which is like, if those people want to take those kinds of risks, fine. But most people aren't really in a hurry to make a show about doxing themselves constantly. The alternatives to doxing would be to go on a trip to a faraway location and be like, wow, Pokemon Go in Yosemite National Park. Isn't this fun? Which is like a neutral ground kind of place. But then that's just like, that's a big ask. In a previous episode of this of this uh, Q and A series, there was an episode about the idea of like other things that you wish you could do that you can't do with your current channel. And well, I don't necessarily wish I could do that kind of thing. That's an example of what I of what I was talking about before, which is it was just that there's opportunity cost, which is that uh, time invested eats away from time invested elsewhere. So. If I wanted to do some some kind of crazy thing like that, I would straight up have to make less content for you guys in on the current format because I'd have to be making significantly harder to make content where you go on a day trip, spend all day filming stuff, then spend hours editing that stuff. Like there's a reason why the people who make that kind of content only make that kind of content and they only put out a video like every three days because it's actually a lot of work to both record a phone and record like yourself and your environment and do commentary and scripting and like news covering and gameplay and then take all of that stuff home and then edit edit all of that into like a proper like like 
road blog vlog venture thing where you're like you're out and you're going on your trip and here's ah and here's the drone shot like you'd have to get a drone to like do air, do an aerial shot of this location and then set this part to music and like you're trying to edit it into a compelling thing because the live experience is not particularly compelling you kind of have to like edit the highlights down into a compelling video and some of these people have gotten really good at it and it's their job now uh but that's just straight up like the process involved in making compelling content for Pokemon Go basically involves me quitting what I do now to just make Pokemon Go content because of how work intensive it is to make compelling stuff out of that. I don't see where this person is I can turn this quest into. I don't know where they are. It's tripping me out. That's one of the reasons. That's, that's, that's basically the two reasons. One, uh, I'm not really in a big hurry to advertise my location constantly in order to cover the game. And two, the game isn't very compelling to, to show, so you have to, like, make a production out of it. Even the people that I do see cover the game, on top of the, uh, on top of heavily edited versions of the experience that have, like, kind of a sub-narrative to it and everything, they also, like, straight up just start vlogging about something else for a chunk of the video, usually, just because, uh, that's how you kind of supplement the content, is kind of make it a road blog kind of experience in particular trainer tips is a channel that goes to like different countries on a regular basis which yeah that adds some spice to the coverage i'm sure that i'm not in that situation even remotely where i <laughs> that's a thing that'll happen so given that i am playing this game all the time but i can't really cover it in a meaningful way this is kind of my one chance is like there's, there'll be, there's an occasional tweet or status update on the YouTube's weird community dashboard thing that exists that some of you see and some of you don't. I made a big post there recently that covers some of the stuff that's covered in this Q&A. If you want to find that, you just go to the community tab on my profile, which I don't know. There's a lot of different versions of YouTube, so like I don't know if you how you find it versus like Xbox versus smart TV versus desktop versus smartphone versions of running youtube but at least on desktop there's just a community tab on my profile so there's that's where that is uh as far as like, like i know that i know that a tab is is accessible on desktop directly but somewhere or other so, some people are shown that content in like a facebook style feed and i don't really entirely know where because i the way i use youtube never shows it because the only way I use YouTube really is via, like, the slash subscriptions page, <clears throat> which shows all of my, all the uploads to the channels that I'm subscribed to in chronological order. And that version does not feature those at all. So I don't even know where the, where this, oh god, you can't fly here. That was distressing. Whoa. Like, I just died right when I fell in. That was a weird visual. I guess this is where the question mark must be, is somewhere down here in the hellhole. Uh, yeah, I actually don't really fully understand where the, that stuff is surfaced. But it goes somewhere, because whenever I put something on the community tab, it gets like 50 to 100 likes and some comments. And I'm like, oh, this someone's seeing this. And I guess it must do a Twitter-style thing where it spreads to other people that don't want it, because... Uh, I get comments from people saying they're not even subscribed to me and don't know who I am, but they got this post and I'm like, okay, cool. I can't do anything about that, but okay. Congrats 
on that. I thought this was gonna be I was gonna be in trouble, but these guys are babies that are easy to murder. They're even called offspring. They look like fully grown things, but they're little babies that you murder. They're dead now. Uh I think that'll be it for Pokemon Go. I can't really think of where to go next, thought process-wise. Uh, as far as Pokemon Sword and Shield, on some level, I dread covering it, but on another level, I'm like, I don't know, maybe. Uh, I I think I preferred the way I've co I'm covering... Uh, oh god, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. No, it's fine. Nope. Actually, I'm fine. Everything's, everything here isn't very strong. I have cooldowns to pop. Uh, my core problem with Pokemon is that it's just not very engaging to play. And it's... and... So, like, I can... I could see myself doing it. I don't play... I don't play Pokemon games at all these days. Aside from this influx of Pokemon Go. But, uh, what does it say? That free. Don't know how to do that. Uh, I must have to kill like a boss or something. Yeah. Uh, I don't normally play any Pokemon Go. This is a lot of guys. And I don't find it very compelling. And it's made... Uh, I, just said, I just said Pokemon Go, didn't I, instead of Pokemon? I don't play the core Pokemon games because I don't, I don't find their gameplay very compelling because it's turn-based JRPG combat. But in particular, like... I want to say Pokemon was my first video game RPG. I'll, I'll put that in air quotes because they're not really RPGs and that you don't make narrative decisions or really build a character or do any of the stuff that's actually role-playing. You just capture a bunch of Pokemon and then they have what we call RPG mechanics, which means they level up, basically. And that's basically all the RPG elements, which is as much RPG elements as is, it, as is, is in, like, your average superhero game these days. Like... Batman and Spider-Man generally are game like open world games to generally have leveling up now. That's how unhelpful that definition is. But uh for games that people that play video games tend to call RPGs, Pokemon was basically my first encounter with that. And it was really interesting and I'm like, "Oh my god, look at this crazy game." And I was really hooked for a bit with those two games I mentioned before that I played. But before long, uh, I discovered, first of all, I discovered Golden Sun and Final Fantasy, which are much more interesting implementations of those things, because instead of having a bunch of random Pokemon, I get to have a party of characters I care about. So immediately I'm like, I, 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 I turned away from Pokemon and never turned back because I'm like, who cares about having like bunch of faceless battles against a bunch of randos where I use my Scyther and my Kabuto to use the same attack over and over again to grind a lot, basically. Where the battles have no stakes and the Pokemon don't have personalities and it's just grinding... You're just collecting mascots to grind them for the sake of it. Uh, I just don't find that compelling and immediately didn't want to go back to that once I discovered Golden Sun and Final Fantasy X because I'm like, I could... Instead of those people, I could have, like, Oren and Titus, Titus or Yuna, and so on. Like, 
a, a party of characters that have like personalities and a narrative and goals and that I want to see through and so suddenly there's like a drive and a narrative happening and that's way more compelling to me in addition to the fact that like Final Fantasy X's combat is mountains more interesting to me than Pokemon Yellow for example in particular because the characters are more complicated there's a bunch of progression systems but also like the I really liked the combat system where there was a turn order that you could actively try to manipulate for your own gain via the speed systems. I loved the turn order, like, side screen cue thing that was in that game. But then I discovered Bioware games. I, I played KOTOR and Jade Empire for the first time, and I'm like, oh, real RPGs. I discovered what those were. And then I really didn't want to go back to... Not only did I not really want to go back to JRPGs, I especially didn't want to go back to Pokemon, because now it's like, not only am I have a, having a cast of characters that I care about instead of just personality-less mascots that jiggle a bit, they vibrate slightly when you pick a move and don't have a personality or goals or anything. Instead, I have, like, Alistair and stuff like that, and Garrus, which is a whole different experience uh, but also I get to make a series of choices that affect the narrative in a whole bunch of different ways. So now I'm like actually role-playing and I learned what that actually means as opposed to what video games tend to call it. And suddenly I'm like, I, these all seem like steps up. Like I kind of, like I kind of, on some level, I kind of wish that the Pokemon were people on some level and were characters that wanted things to happen. It'd be really hard to come up with 150 characters and it would really ruin the whole catching sequence when you have like a bunch of clones of the same character, which is why they don't do that stuff. But it's why I don't engage with Pokemon very much. And so then you're left with just the grinding and the combat. And grinding is like the antithesis to making an interesting let's play, generally speaking, because you just do a con you just intentionally repeat the same content over and over again for the sake of it. But uh like, the combat itself I find really unfortunate because of what I said before, which is that you, you have, like, four moves per character, and you... In my experience, from what I remember of playing it as a kid, and also our, my experience of, like, watching other people play it a bit, and also playing Eevee with, Mar with Marty, it's like, you kind of just... For the majority of fights, you just pick the same move over and over again, and the fight's over in a couple turns, and you don't really have to apply yourself, which... I have I have uh, qualms with on a gameplay perspective, but also I have extra qualms with on a uh, on a let's play perspective because a game is interesting when I have to make t interesting tactical decisions, especially if it's like tense and I'm worried. Like like a, a gold standard, I would say would be something like XCOM Two or the current game I'm playing, Druid Stone, where it's like if I'm I'm these tactical RP these tactical RPGs that have like all this this threat coming at you. And every every action you take counts. That's the kind of thing where it's an, it's interesting for me to do a let's play, not only for people to watch because they're seeing me in that situation, but also for me to do because I have things to talk about because there's the current situation and all of its obstacles and threats, as opposed to just oh, it's a Jigglypuff. Use Fire Blast on it. There we go. Do 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 do. You got do 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 do. You got seventy experience, and then you just like you run you like you. 
You just click the fucking button 50 times for the dialogue to proceed to do the one attack you clicked on. And then it's like, you got this experience. Your party got this experience. You got an item. You got 50 quid or whatever. And it's like, it's it's just so much text and time waste to you. And I never did anything interesting in the process. So, like, I don't have anything to talk about. And I'm just button mashing through all the menus to make them end. I don't know, maybe Pokemon's gotten totally advanced since I last played it, and Eevee is an exception because it's a remake of Red and Blue or something. But it really feels like that'll be the playthrough, and that's rough. Just for me to do. Like, JRPGs in general, when I've covered them on the channel, have been kind of a bummer to cover. I need to find these goddamn objectives I can't find. JRPGs in general get really rough to cover because of the sheer repetition of them, and you and most of them are usually a step above uh, Pokemon on that front, and so that's it. Really feels like Pokemon's often kind of a private experience that you just kind of you just kind of play it with yourself and just have some fun and so on, and just enjoy it for yourself more than spectating it because it doesn't feel like it's compelling to watch to me. That's often proven wrong. Like, often what I think is going to be interesting just isn't what what the audience designs decides necessarily. So, like, I don't know. Maybe people will just be, like, compelled enough by, like, the nostalgic imagery and the fact that it's a Pokemon game. And, like, and that, I, oh my god, Keith's playing Pokemon. And maybe that's enough. I just feel like I'll be dragged down by the experience a bit. Because, that, that's as far as I can tell, that's what Pokemon is. And I've run this... I've, t- I've talked to... Uh, I've talked to Marty in particular about this stuff. And and Andrew. Because I you know I pay some attention to the genre here... The series here and there. Because especially since people keep asking me to cover it. Uh, and I just... As far as I can tell, I'm largely still right. Because they largely agree. And like even in Marty's case in particular, he straight up says like... Yeah, basically everything you say is still true... And I just, for some reason, can't stop playing. <laughs> like, he basically just admits that it's just compelling one way or another, and he just wants to keep obsessively playing each game. Which means that, which is fine, because people get hooked to things. But it's much like the process of, like, me grinding in Diablo, for example, where it's just not necessarily the most interesting thing to cover. So I think the one way I would cover Pokemon, essentially... I don't know. Maybe I'll just end up covering it, regardless. Maybe the Patreon will select Pokemon Sword or Shield as the next uh, game I play after after it comes out or whatever. And then it's like, well, gonna have to make this work one way or another, and maybe it'll be fine. But uh, if I were to ch- to willingly choose to go through one of those games, uh, I think I'd probably want to do it in a similar manner to how we're doing Eevee, which is it's me and another person, whether they're playing or I'm playing, just because at least then I can talk with somebody else and we can do stuff that's separate from the experience of just playing it alone, uh, which is just something else to do because it's, it's kind of a distraction because like that kind of distraction helps deal with the fact that the game just kind of is monotonous. Like, when it's me and Marty, we just kind of don't talk about a lot of the stuff happening on the screen when it comes to, like, just going through encounter after encounter consecutively because clearing out the ten trainers standing in an open field that you have to clear through to get through the zone 
just isn't very compelling if they aren't making you make interesting decisions. And so we just talk about other stuff. And uh, that's, that's, that's just the kind of thing that comes best with a, another person. I think of like the, gra- the Game Grumps format for covering uh, their, the previous Pokemon games that they've covered, for example. It's just like it's a, it's a couple of people talking to each other and Pokemon is happening. Uh, and you kind of go in and out of, play, of paying full attention when it applies because of the, fa- the nature of the game. I think that's more I- ideal. The problem is that uh, I don't live I don't live in Marty's house anymore, so like we're already struggling to very occasionally once every like three months set up an extended recording session for Pokemon Eevee, where I then try to string out those videos over the course of like a month or something, just to try to bandaid over how far away the playthrough the playthrough sessions are, because uh, it's 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 quite a haul. We're both very far away from each other, not not insurmountably, but inconveniently far away from each other, and we have the issue of the uh, just being adults with lives and schedules where that, that where we have to find weekends where not only do we both want to do the thing, but also it actually lines up so we can do the thing. Oh, I have the fetish already. There we go. So I, I don't... It probably would not be Marty if we did Sword for a few reasons. One is that unlike Eevee, uh, which, which is just a remake that he's not particularly super into, uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield would be a new game. So I imagine that Marty would immediately binge through it on, on his own like he does all the other games. So he also wouldn't be sharing the experience with me. More so he would just kind of be... He'd be somebody that's way too aware of how the whole game works, doing a not-blind playthrough while I'm there blind, which is less good than the current thing, but also, like, I think it would take significantly longer to get through a full new Pokemon game than it does for us to get through Eevee. So I think it would just be a huge insurmountable thing for us to ultimately reasonably get through, in addition to the fact that he wouldn't be blind the way that he is for at least for Eevee, as, as much as you can be blind of a remake that's or a reimagining of a previous game or whatever. So maybe I could trick freaking Andrew or Bird into doing it with me. Uh, via like remote call in where like I maybe I'll be I'd be playing it locally and they'd be watching via a remote uh, screen and doing commentary along with me or something that 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 could potentially happen but it's a big that's a big ask for either of them because that's a big time commitment so we'll see we'll see if i end up covering it i will say they basically called my bluff because i was like i've all this time i've been like oh nope sorry can't cover those pokemon games they're all on handheld consoles and i don't have i don't have ways to hand cover handheld consoles so I guess I can't cover Pokemon was like my convenient out for the longest time. And now they're on a console, which is also technically a handheld console, but it's also a home console with HDMI, unlike all those DSs. So I can record it, unlike the other ones, because it has HDMI. Anything that has that, I'm good. Uh, So I do have the power. So we'll see what form it takes. Who knows, maybe it becomes the Q&A series. Jesus. Nah, people would riot. (laughs) 
I think people would riot if I made a uh, Patreon exclusive Q and A series where I'm playing Pokemon Sword in the background or something. Uh, it would fit that format pretty well, though. But I kind of intentionally choose stuff that isn't super relevant right now because I don't want people to feel like it's an exclusive let's play that they're not getting because that's not the point of this series. It's just a game where I'm incidentally. It's just a series where I incidentally play a game because that's the way I do these. There we go. This has been a decidedly not especially Q&A heavy episode of my Q&A series. As it goes, I'm about to die. Uh, pop all the hot, hot keys. Uh. Don't die, please. Ah, uh, stop it. There we go. Stop hitting me with fireballs. You're supposed to be dead. Okay, there we go. I got way too much attention just now. Why is this a not super Q&A heavy episode? It's uh, partly because I'm actually drying up on questions. So if you want to subscribe to the Patreon and ask me some new questions for future episodes, uh, please. <laughs> uh, if this dries up, though, we've had a pretty good run. It's episode 45. Like, this Q&A series has outlived, I want to say every... It might have actually already outlived every podcast I've ever run in episode count. Go figure, when I do it solo, it's easier to do a long thing. That's why I always talk about, like, where's Shibuya Scramble and stuff like that, and, and I'm saying, and I always say, like, I don't have full control over stuff that features other people, and I just, I, all I can do is do my best for various playthroughs. Uh, this is a good example of that, like, unlike all the podcasts that I can't keep going indefinitely because they they'd have to feature other people that are of varying levels of commitment and so on, uh, I can just kind of keep going with a weekly solo thing. But Q&A format works better for me than podcast because then I can only occasionally podcast the way I am right now, where I just kind of go on a topic, but then I can largely lean on the Q&As to decide the topics and so on. We might hit a point where it might be an every other week thing if the questions totally dry up. But I do have a handful of remaining questions, and I still have my backlog from the old Q&A series where I just ask really old questions that I never got around to in the last Q&A series back in, like from years ago. And I just say they're from Anonymous because that's easier than trying to figure out whether or not I should address these people this much later by name and so on. I don't know, for some reason it feels weird for a few reasons. Let's go find a nice little safe corner. Saith asks, what is the most awkward thing that happens to you socially? Uh, probably just cashiers. <laughs> there's a number of, yeah, there's like a, there's like a goddamn tapestry spectrum number of just bizarre, slightly off interactions I've had with cashiers where I just phrase something wrong or like it's the first time I've spoken in hours or even that day and I just will like I got, there's plenty of moments where like uh, there's the moments where my voice just gives out or I'm like oh right I haven't spoken yet today to anybody because everybody's like out or whatever so the first person I talk to is the cashier and I'm responding to them and my voice just doesn't work which is fun and you try to power through that or uh various amounts of like saying too much or too little. I'll, I I constantly overread 
social interactions with cashiers because it's such a brief interaction and also they're all different people so like some of them seem to want more interaction and sociability sometimes and almost want to start a whole conversation and then other ones are just a quick little thing and i'll just there's little moments here and there it's like a test each time where like i'll like just phrase something strangely or not quite say it right then i have to then i'm then i'm clarifying and i'm like i what this is what i had to get myself in the situation where i'm sitting here clarifying this dumb thing and now i'm like now it's just, you get all self-conscious and weird at some point and so that's that happens plenty just strange not usually it's not like every it's not like i'm totally like collapsing into myself every time i try to like buy something anywhere it's just that I've just had my fair share, and it's always like it happens often enough that I'm just like I, I'm I'm thinking about it when it doesn't happen, because of the fact that it does sometimes happen. So that's always just a whole a whole thing. God, what was the last one? Oh yeah, one one of them was just a weird one of like they there was like a weird thing at Pismo that was like a modified. It, it it looked like a Starbucks, but it also served, like, fancy desserts and shit, and, like, on plates. And it was, like, kind of a restaurant and kind of a Starbucks, and then they used, like... I think it was because of the fact that it was part of a hotel, which we weren't staying at, but we walked into for that place. Uh, they had, like, permanent cookware, or dishware and stuff like that. Like, so you... So, like, my I got this, like like chocolate fountain cake thing or whatever it's called and and then i'm like so i like awkwardly walk back to the counter because i'm like where do you guys want these because i wasn't sure if uh i wasn't sure if they wanted us to just leave them on the tables like you do in some restaurants because it didn't seem like one or at least there was no other examples to go by because nobody else was like leaving anything around because it was kind of slow anyway I was like, do I bring them back? Because, like, oftentimes you take stuff to, like, a place where you dump the dishes. And, like, I was so off-center by the fact that it looked like a Starbucks, which is inherently a place where you don't have, like, leavings that you, like, turn in. It's everything that they give you is, like, garbage, basically, at a Starbucks. What you doing there? You casting something on me? I just leveled up again, apparently. Productive session. Uh... In a Starbucks, you just have, like, disposable stuff. Disposable or recyclable, but not, like, stuff you turn back in, like, metal, like, like, metal forks and dishes and so on, and proper dishes and everything. It's like I was so, oh, right, they used to revive because they brought that person back to life because I brought them their bones. Uh, so, like, I was, I was so torn by, like, there's an inherent disposability of this kind of location, but you gave me stuff that isn't disposable. So, I, I didn't really know what to do with them. So I kind of just brought them back to the counter and I felt slightly weird already because there was another person there that I was standing by which kind of walked up right when the interaction was happening. So like suddenly I'm like, I feel weirder because they're kind of waiting in line for an interaction. I'm trying to return a, a dish. So now if I'm in the wrong or confused in some way, now there's an extra witness to my weird mistake that's watching this happen. So I'm or so I'm like extra in my own head at this point. Put these better bags you've got. I see them. Yeah. Better bags. Uh, generally, I'm just worse at interacting with strangers, specifically. 
when I'm comfortable with someone, I don't get in my own head. But when I'm like having a bunch of constant surprise engagements with different people, there's plenty of opportunity for just awkwardness to get out because I've never been great in general. Oop, there we go. I like how big my bags got, I hope, right? I think they all got bigger. And so I meant to ask, like, where do you guys want these? But I was already kind of holding them and she was kind of already reaching for them to take them because whether or not that was the right thing to do, she was already like moving on with the situation and just taking them. And that was that would basically be the end of the interaction already. But that's when I got the sentence out of like, where do you guys want these or whatever? And I'm like, you idiot. She literally is already taking them from you. You're but now you're asking. And then also she's like, what? And I'm like, oh, great. So she also only like half heard me. So then I'm like clarifying what I said. But then I'm clarifying that also I'm aware that we were like beyond the point of that question anyway. So it was a stupid question. And I'm like, no, now I, man, I really should have just said never mind and not tried to say any of this stuff. But that's too late. And so it's that it's that type of dumb shit. That's probably my awkward social interactions is me just being useless at making the right calls in some of these situations and then just living in the moment and then being like oh cool that's gonna that's gonna just be in my brain that that weird interaction i have is just gonna stick with me and you know that the person the interaction was with forgot about it immediately because they're just trying to get through their busy ass shift and all this other stuff's happening so it's like literally a completely private thing to me this whole idea of getting stuck on this moment and yet here we are so that's the whole thing i bet i can ride the dragon up there because i think you were originally weren't allowed to fly in this region so i bet that's why this i bet this guy dri like flies you up to that place all of this stuff's been rebalanced and changed and hatcheted over the years let's see where he takes me i like pads oh he gives you a he gives you a smaller dragon to ride that's got less horns, but just out of them. The way the dragon—that's how dra that's what dragon birth sounds like. Yeah, Koldara is it? Is that a fucking Final Fantasy spell? Oh, <laughs> uh, he uses Koldara. We're between questions now, but I, I want to show this because it's just pretty. So we're just gonna hang out for a minute. And look at this little flight path. Because this is a cool... They make some pretty locations. I'm not super into... A lot of design sensibilities of... Blizzard games necessarily. Or particularly just the infinite grind of... WoW and Diablo isn't really... Interesting to me anymore. More so than like... Uh, Overwatch is a more directly... Appreciable like core gameplay loop of like you're playing a oh i've been here before and already taken their quests maybe uh i think i have been here before uh overwatch is a more direct gameplay thing without all the artifice between you and just playing the competitive game but diablo 3 in particular went so down the rabbit hole of grinding that i'm just like not super into it and I don't like the narrative design of basically any of the things they make. But this is a neat place. Look at this place. This is ridiculous. 
This next question is a little hard to ask because it's just like a think into the archive of all of your brain and try to do a thing. Uh, Cal B asks, are there any games that you would like to recommend that you think others or even yourself at one point have overlooked? This is also similar to like being like, what's your favorite of this? And stuff like that, where it's just kind of hard to like think through the entire archive of hundreds of things you've encountered and try to think of a thing that like tops the list or whatever. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to scroll through some of my let's play like playlists and just try to remember a few instances of weird things as far as the, and there's also like a issue with me hitting like the greatest hits of what I've said before, which is that like I, uh, I'd always recommend Pyre, which I also, here's an additional concern of just like, I don't, I don't know actually what's popular. I mean, I, I know a few instances. I know that like Fortnite and Minecraft and PUBG and World of Warcraft and Overwatch and so on and Apex Legends. Like I, I, I'm aware of like the concept of like the the most viewed games on Twitch and stuff like that and Pokemon. But like the aside from the top top things that come to mind, it's, I don't really have much sense of how popular things are. So I don't really know if stuff is overlooked. So I can only kind of guess. Uh. So as far as greatest hits go, Pyre is a game that I always think people should look at more. I've never really heard anyone ever discuss Pyre, ever, really. And I have no idea how well it sold or how many people played it or what. But it didn't seem to make the kind of waves that Bastion and Transistor did. But I think it's probably the best game Supergiant ever made. And it as i've said before like it just does really cool stuff of marrying uh it has a really cool gameplay loop itself and and its systems are interesting but also it does a really good job in marrying gameplay and narrative so that you're doing some proper role playing and decision making and so on but also the the process of making decisions instead of just being uh, picking a menu option is you having to execute on a challenge so you need to win at the big thing in order to, in or, if you want to win you have to win and if you and like if you want to even if you intentionally lose that's the thing you have to do in game performatively uh it's like your choice of like oh this is the person that i want to be able to send to the overworld and and save them from exile because that's the core thing in the games you're trying to save various people from their exile and you have a limited amount of attempts to try to do it with your various party members you still have to succeed so you can straight up be like that person. I'm gonna I'm gonna free them and give them a life in the overworld. Hooray! They deserve redemption. And then you fail, and then the game continues forward in in the narrative. And the uh, and your competitor that you were facing off against, their leader is now free in the world. And that, that'll affect the ending in some way, but also like it'll affect how many people from your party you ultimately get to save in the end. Because instead of just being like you lost, try again, the game moves forward. And that's way more compelling than failing and then just trying again over and over again. Let's see. Poking away at some of the stuff. I should not be looking at the Patreon playlist because those are all popular games because that's why they won on Patreon. Let's see. Was there a good Souls-like? Funnily enough, yeah, I wouldn't really necessarily heavily recommend any of the Souls-likes I've ever played because I don't think that they've... There's been some that are better than others, but none of them have really quite captured being as good as any of the Souls games necessarily, and they have their own issues left and right. 
Salt and Sanctuary is promising, but has some issues. Neo has good gameplay, but a terrible campaign structure and so on. Uh, Zenith is a game that comes to mind, which is not necessarily a good game. It's just a game that has a really a pretty good narrative and some genuine comedy in, in a video game, which is rare enough for me. Uh, its gameplay is terrible, but I think nobody would have looked into that game necessarily. Uh, and that was pretty neat. Pathologic is kind of having kind of, kind of having a renaissance, but that's a pretty interesting, compelling, strange game that, by and large, people didn't really know about. And I, while I have my I have qualms here and there with the experience of playing it, there's definitely a lot of cool stuff going on there. Dark Messiah of Might and Magic is a really good. It's just a compelling like Source Engine physics-based action RPG fight thing where you just kind of. You kind of fight your way through a linear campaign in a like an immersive sim kind of sense in that you're doing a bunch of systems driven things in the environment to do what you want instead of just doing basic attacks all the time. So using the environment against people and using tricks and so on is just part of what's fun. Good mix of like being able to do stealth and other other things like it's a thief game or whatnot to really do weirder stuff, which is more entertaining. Not a ton of RPG stuff. Uh, there'll probably be a puzzle game in here, because that's the stuff that people know about less, is the various puzzle games I play. Some of them turn out to be really cool, and puzzle games as a, as a genre are not very popular. Oh yeah, Cosmic Express was pretty neat. Just making little train tracks to... Uh, get the little alien passengers to the little alien houses, and it was a, it was kind of a riff on the witness in a little bit, where you're trying to draw lines that have to have a, a clear start and end, and have to be continuous and can't wrap upon themselves and can't reuse the same tile, but having particular goals that were pretty hard to pull off. In that theme, there's like Steven Sausage Roll is. Uh, kind of Sokoban style puzzle game with like which is like block pushing but instead of just pushing a block you're pushing a sausage which on top of being a two by one tile object it rolls so every time you move it it changes what side is up and your goal is to cook the top and bottom of both sides of the sausage so you need to cook it across two tiles but also on the top and bottom so there's really it really affects the way that you think about how you move the object and then you move it via a little character holding a fork out so you take up a tile and the fork takes up a tile and you rotating and moving and strafing all affects how you move the sausage. And they're in complicated environments that keep demanding you to innovate how you approach the situation. And they get really, really complicated fast. Uh, that was like a devastatingly difficult game at times. Uh, that was a thing. Legend of Grimrock games and Talos Principle are both fantastic. But there's a decent chance people know about those already. Those are just some of the best... Like, puzzly games. Grimrock being a uh, dungeon crawler RPG that has a lot of puzzle elements in it, but it's cool exploration stuff that's fun. Omen Sight's a decent look. If you just want to see a game that does a lot of the time travel stuff uh, from Zeroscape, where you're trying to do a non-linear narrative, but just having it be paced better and have better... Better, t better paced revelations that are delivered better and not a giant bloated mess. Same thing goes kind of for what we've seen so far of Shibuya Scramble, which we haven't played enough of for me to hardly recommend or anything, but 
that game has so much like charm and humor to its style in a way that actually does translate better across culture while also being a more elegant uh, approach to having a multi-character non-linear time travel storyline where you're trying to in that in that game's case you're trying to get five characters to basically survive and accomplish their goals in each given hour of a day while while a crisis is happening and you you uh, play through the visual novel but then make different choices as each character along the way that change their not only their path but the can affect the other characters so you're trying to find out which combination of choices across all the characters lead to all of them uh not having a game over during that hour basically which is neat uh ghost of a tale is like a modern day stealth banjo kazooie sort of uh it's got some really good writing and narrative and good characters uh really good character moments and stuff like that that i found really compelling but it's large and it's, it's largely uh walk around the environment collect-a-thon type thing maybe not banjo kazooie necessarily but just like i was surprised by the fact that it looks it's framed as a stealth game but the stealth isn't that hardcore and it mostly becomes about navigating this one environment that you keep opening up more and more shortcuts and, and extra doors to like the spencer mansion and you keep your goal is to just kind of get MacGuffins and keys and complete quests to pr- progress the story and unlock new areas and so on and you're kind of more picking at this big environment that happens to have hazards and threats in it more so than actually playing a stealth game and i found that to be a really cool game to play through was ghost of a tale that was all around a neat experience the yog is pretty great for a co-op experience uh you sit down with four people and you just all make decisions about where you're going to go in a city that has a ongoing oncoming calamity city's going to be destroyed in like five weeks or so and so you and your group of people are kind of just making choices and randomized events happen and you collide with each other in different ways and a bunch of unexpected events can can think can happen and the various things happening in the game affect your character's stats and then you kind of just make a choice at the end you you each each person makes a final choice at the end of the game that determines the ending and it's a combination of their choice and the world state at the time and what stats the characters have at the, at that moment it's a really quick play where every 20 to 30 minutes you can start over because you're you've already beaten it again and it's just kind of a fun thing to poke at with a room full of people just kind of seeing what you got what you can get to happen and whether you can get yourselves to win but also just seeing what kind of cool weird endings can come out of it uh and uh because i'm generating this list by looking at my own youtube profile you can look up playthroughs of any of these games on my youtube channel if that's what you so desire because i've covered all of them all right so i I was standing still because i was looking at lists but now i can go back to playing for a bit this will be the last question because we're already like two hours in because i talked way too long about pokemon but hey we're still doing three questions which is normal-ish for me even if i'm intentionally picking somewhat shorter ones uh Anonymous asks, seeing how Cyberpunk 2077 is somewhere on the horizon, how do you feel about the cyberpunk genre? Here's where I admit that I have not significantly engaged with the cyberpunk genre. Uh, I I did not grow up a fan of Blade Runner. Uh, I don't know if I'd even really seen it in its entirety. I might have seen it once before I watched it again in preparation for Cyberpunk, uh, for Blade Runner 20... I think I have it over here. What's it called? Uh, 2049 
the sequel, which I did a spoiler cast with Andrew, where we discussed that and did that together, which was fun. Uh, which in, in that one in particular, we just kind of came along like the, the idea of like, it's interesting that like, it's called the Blade Runner and he's the Blade Runner, but really he doesn't do a lot of Blade Running. And in fact, he, a lot of the story just kind of happens at him and he's kind of not prepared to deal with anything happening in that game, in that, uh, in that movie. That was a weird experience. Uh, but as far as Cyberpunk goes, like I also haven't played the first two Deus Ex games. I've only played the two new ones, which I did for the channel. Uh, Back to back, basically. I, I played Human Revolution when the Mankind Divided was coming out. But I, uh, aside from that, I have played... Uh, I have played like one session of the cyberpunk roleplay... Uh, is it called cyberpunk or something else? There, There is a cyberpunk roleplaying system. And I played one session of it. Uh, our DM that was doing D&D &D brought over a friend of his that he plays other campaigns with and that guy was going to run a cyberpunk campaign as like a preview but it was like it was just a really bad experience I wasn't ready for it I didn't really understand the setting or what was happening and he just kind of wanted us all to pick roles I think ultimately I think he just I think he kind of had a narrative in mind and he just kind of played it out and we were just kind of parts of it. But I kind of got one of the worst roles to get when you don't know the universe, which is that I was like a, I think it was a fixer or a, whatever the one is that kind of like has a lot of, has information and kind of sends people to do things and kind of runs the show essentially. Uh, I was totally unprepared to do that kind of role because of the fact that I didn't... This is a visual, by the way. Uh, because I didn't know the setting very well or what was happening in it, I was just a really bad person to play that role. Uh, and I just kind of cluelessly, like, basically kept asking him what happens next as as gameplay, which is not generally how role-playing should work, but I just couldn't do any better. It was a weird session. It was a one-off. It didn't really go anywhere and never saw that person again. Uh... That was a whole thing. Uh, I've played... Uh, not sight. What's it called? Shadowrun. Oh, that's what that's what it was. That it was. A, I think that was a Shadowrun campaign specifically. But uh, more recently, I played Shadowrun Hong Kong, which is more or less cyberpunk in nature. And I've played the two most recent Deus Exes, and, and that's been my pr primary. Uh, exposure besides uh, recently watching both Blade Runners, which I I think, wow, that hurt. Which I, I think the original Blade Runner might have been the was that the jumping off point for the entire genre. Maybe it might have not necessarily been. I actually don't know how to get my how do I get my body back if I died all the way up there? Uh oh, this is gonna be like a problem, isn't it? <laughs> Welp What do you do if you flew to a place? I don't know this location very well. I think this might be the end of the gameplay portion of this Q&A uh, As I figure out later what the fuck to do here. I might have to look this one up uh, uh, There's a book 
Well, obviously there's do androids dream of electric sheep. I think there's a mind something. I think there's a book that specifically is credited for uh, really being kind of the origin of this entire thing. And I can't think of it right now. But my understanding is that Blade Runner, specifically the movie, is what did the most legwork to popularize the genre and especially uh, really popularize a particular aesthetic for the whole thing because it was a particularly visual thing. Was it NetHack? MindNet? I don't, I don't know. I can't think of what the, the book is I might be thinking of. Somebody probably knows, so it doesn't matter. Uh, but generally, the core concept basically seems to be this anti-corporate message of capitalism run amok to the point where the, the companies and corporations straight up become the government and basically run everything in itself. Uh, in particular, it seems to have things in common with like the alien franchise where Wayland Utani is like this seemingly incredibly powerful mega corporation that can finance like interstellar travel and these crazy missions and so on and can be the big boogeyman for the whole thing. Like I think a lot of the same conceits are kind of at running there in the alien franchise, even though we don't, especially in the movies, we don't necessarily fully understand what their world is like outside of the specific missions, like what their society is like. We usually don't spend a lot of time outside of the particular missions that put us in the area where we're going to encounter an alien. Oh, this must be how you get up there. The portal. Your corpse is not in an instance. Never mind, that's an instance. I'm fucked. I don't know how to do this. Uh, and I, I really I actually do like that idea. That speaks to my own politics to an extent. Uh, but that is kind of built into the idea is dealing with these mega corporations in such a way, especially with like Shadowrun. Like that, that's a setting where like those things run everything and are explicitly the villain in basically every narrative. And from what I've gathered, that's largely been a thing about all these things. And generally speaking, they want to raise questions about like transhumanism and the uh, companies and corporations leading to like the downfall of society or the downfall of, of the world's uh ecology consumption for its own sake leading to uh the permanent da permanent damage to the world and its systems and so on and there's there's a lot of messages to be drawn from that stuff and it's also one of the most overtly political uh genres that exist especially when it comes to video games which is a thing that often tries desperately not to acknowledge politics, even when they are about political things by na by nature, leading to such hilarious moments where David Cage makes an entire game about civil rights explicitly down to like quoting Martin Luther King and having like peace marches and racial segregation and every element possible and every every phrase and image you could get from that and then has the balls to try to say that his games aren't political until months later when he tried to pat, pat himself on the back for his amazing art achievements later like especially because people are so touchy about politics in general i think many companies will just break them their back 
as they twist and contort to like refuse to acknowledge the politics in their game when they make games about explicitly po- political ideas like wasn't the division 2 straight up about the downfall of society and it takes place in Washington DC it's like it's not and they're like no our game's not political at all it doesn't have any messages in it because and, and in many cases the the reason why these quotes about these people saying this stuff isn't actually because they believe it. The reason why these quotes are so unbelievably hilariously dumb is because of course they d- of course they know their games are political, but they don't want to acknowledge it in interviews in any way because boy, does the internet get instantly mad about anything vaguely political all the time and people get really really mad and they no, no one wants to get their game labeled as being an SJW game. So the the trigger happy people that flip out the moment politics even gets slightly mentioned need to be like in a very token manner assuaged into thinking no our game's totally neutral and not political it definitely doesn't have any things you'd read into it based on you know the core premise or anything like that uh but oftentimes people can insist that stuff's not political to such an extent that it gets baffling to the point where there's there's a there's a pretty good meme image about uh specifically Deus Ex, I think, or Cyberpunk as a whole, maybe. I'm not sure which one of it is, where it shows like it shows someone that looks like like Adam Jensen or something, like shooting uh it just has a bunch of arrows coming out of them shooting over the head of the person in the audience, and it just says uh, all these questions promote that are being promoted by the game, like about like racial segregation or transhumanism or like corporate corruption and all these other concerns like just this massive list of things that are like just the core themes of the narrative and also the genre in many cases and they're just all going over the guy's head and the guy's just looking at the cool robot man and going like wow cool future and that's kind of that's that's largely how i feel about how people react to this stuff sometimes because it's like no this this stuff has stuff to say and when people like are trying to still prove to the corpse of Robert Ebert that video games are art because they're so insecure about how an old man that's dead now once said that they're not, uh, that comes with the idea that they have something to say. And when they have something to say, that's going to be political because everything in life is more or less political. That's because it's just life. It's it's that's the narrative of having something to say. Uh, that's what that is. And so I, 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 that's another th- point of frustration is people that are so insecure that they're like, see, video games are art. And then they'll like point to like Journey or something. I'm like, you know, art has more to it than that, right? It's not like, see, it has pretty art in it. It contains pretty things and music. So that's an example of why video games are art. And I'm not saying it's not because basically everything qualifies as art, but the the qual the qualifier the thing about something being art is has much more to do with like having a purpose and a point often more so than being a pretty picture which is the most shallow and inter- like child's interpretation of what the word art means and it's really embarrassing it's like and it's funny because people cling to calling those things art oftentimes because they're really insecure that somebody once said that their hobby is an art and they got to prove to them even though that person frankly isn't listening anymore and then they're having this conversation in a vacuum now uh but like they're so insecure 
about it that they'll point to specific things as counterpoints and those counterpoints will be so shallow as ideas of what makes something art that they themselves are actually in the act of pointing at those things are kind of exposing themselves as kind of being immature and not ready for that conversation because they their example of what is art is a pretty landscape painting as opposed to like anything that has anything to say like the fact that somebody defaults to journey over spec ops the line for example is super weird and it really speaks to kind of a misconception about how any of this really works i have no idea to get to my corpse and somebody that knows how to get to my corpse is losing their mind because they definitely know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And the rest of people are losing their minds because we're talking about politics and video games. And that always goes super well. And I'm not, I'm not pointing at necessarily Spec Ops line as some massive sterling example. But it's that's a much more clear sign of intent than the other one. which I don't, And I'm not shitting on Journey either, by the way. None of, every, all these things are art. But like the fact that people... But it shows an immaturity in appreciation of the genre that the examples given by these people that are so up in arms about proving that their thing is art are also the things that don't explicitly have a message. And there's and even if there is a message, the reason that they're pointing at that thing isn't because of the message, but because of the fact that it has a pretty landscape in it. And that one part where you slide in the golden sand and the music revs up and you're like, oh, this feeling I'm having... And that's valid, but that's not all that art is, and that's distressing. And that leads to people like looking. That leads to the moments where people look at like cyberpunk and are like, "This doesn't have anything to say. This is just a cool, fun future with mecha guns and my arms a cannon. Yay! That person can turn invisible." I was like, "That's not the point of any of this, dude." Like Adam Jensen's not happy that he's been modified into a shell of what he used to be against his will. Like it's you're not like, wow, cool, he got laser in his shoulder now. Like, no, that's not the feeling that you're supposed to feel. That's why I liked some of the the body horror. I think it was Mankind Divided that straight up showed some like body horror moments of like, oh my god, look how not human Jensen is now. When you see like parts of his body coming apart because like the machines components are all like they were doing something. It's been a while. But on that level, like people will bend over backwards to say that that this thing or that thing is not political. And one of the funniest examples will always be when I saw people arguing that Bioshock isn't political. The game that's explicitly about Ayn Rand and is literally going out of its way to have a political message every step of the way, all the way down for, to its mechanics and its narrative and its setting. Like, the whole point of Bioshock games, all three of them, is to make a political statement and riff on a political ideology taken to its extreme. But people are so up in arms about the idea of not having politics in their video games while also simultaneously calling them art for some reason, uh, that they will even go to deny the games that are explicitly political their politics and that is the most fascinating moment it's just like i like it goes extra next level with some of the bioshock infinite stuff too where it's just like there's some people that just want to enjoy the thing completely non-critically 
partly because they don't want to be challenged themselves that the thing might have stuff to say that they don't agree with. So instead, they just put on blinders and it's just not political. It's just a shooty shooty bang bang game. Yay, I got the bad guy. Ooh, cool time travel, bro. And that's what they get out of it. And I'm like, I don't... Where are we, man? <laughs> anyway, I'm sure that part, last part will play well with uh, audiences. People love it when you talk about politics. Uh, although I, didn't, I need to talk about politics a little more often, as it seems sometimes, because people every now and then like rope me in as being somebody that would agree with this or that thing, where I'm like, oh, fuck no, no, you, you've, you've misjudged... You've desperately misjudged where I am in this conversation, and I am not on your side. Uh, so that's fun. Anyway, guys, thanks for watching, like always. This is the Q&A series. I've been running in circles for a while because we're in the middle of a thing, but I don't know how to get my body back. But that's a problem for future me. Thanks for watching, like always. This has been a free preview episode of the Q&A series that I do every 10 episodes, so like every two and a half months or so. If you would like to get access to future episodes and also the entire backlog of like what this is 45 so minus three it's the other 42 episodes you don't have access to uh, because they were are not free access all you have to do is hop on my patreon and donate any amount of money even one dollar a month gives you access to this entire series both in its current format uh, both for both future episodes and its entire backlog which you can find by clicking on the Q and a like tags sidebar thing that's on my profile it uh it'll show you every post that is tagged as being the q a episodes and so you can scroll through those and see all the episodes without other posts getting in the way and so on it's the whole thing this is my shameless self-promotion because the patreon is how i keep this channel running or more, more specifically how i do it as my full-time job as opposed to working another job and then having a significantly compromised uh, channel either because I make way less content or because I'm just generally less happy because I'm trying to cram recording a channel into the remaining hours I have between you know work and sleep and everything else while I'm just generally more tired and more busy and more stressed so this this has been generally been an improvement when Patreon it w enabled me to do this full time so that I can get my full attention and all that you also gain access to the nomination and voting process for the uh, the Patreon game we choose each time, which currently is Paper Mario. Uh, depending on your tier, you get different access to different parts of that process. Uh, and there's at the time of this recording, there is currently one slot open in the twenty five dollar tier where you get to straight up pick a Let's Try once a month. So that's fun. So when you when you see that a Let's Try opens with me saying that this person chose this game. Uh, that's what that's from. There's, uh, at the time of this recording, unless it fills up in the next 24 hours before this goes up, uh, there's one slot remaining. So thanks for watching like always, guys, and I'll see you next time. Ask more questions! I know it's been a marathon because we're like 45 episodes deep and it's been, it's been a lot of questions, but yeah, keep asking more. There's few enough of them that there's a decent chance that I'll get to them in the next one or two episodes if you ask one. See you guys next time.